We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The countdown is on, Notre Dame fans. Two more days, and Notre Dame is going to launch its fall camp for the 2022 season. Ryan Roberts, our director of recruiting at Irish Breakdown, right there with me today. I'm Brian Driscoll, your publisher, and we are going to talk Notre Dame football today. We're going to have, we're going to have several recruiting shows this week, but uh, these afternoon shows, we're going to focus on team stuff, Ryan, uh, during the main section. We will have a, a mailbag at the end, but it won't be quite as extensive. But throw your questions in now because the earlier you get to them, the earlier you throw them in, the more uh, likely it is that we get that we get them to you. So, Ryan, today we're going to talk about the Notre Dame offense. And you know, this is an interesting group because you and I, when we were talking about the defense the other day, we're going to talk about the strengths of the Notre Dame offense and what we believe are going to be the things that this offense can build around. And we do think there are things this offense is going to build around. When we did this show on the defense, there was a lot of things where it was like, um, you know, well, well, you know, Foskey's already a dude, right? He's already a star. You can build around Brandon Joseph is. And you had made the point, like, even if Cam Hart just does what he did last year, mm-hmm. he's really good. Jason sure. Adam Yola is in a similar boat. J.D. Bertrand's in a similar boat. Jack Kaiser's in a similar boat. Howard Cross, Jacob Lee. There's a lot of like, you know what? That's already pretty good. When you look at the offense, it's kind of a complete 180. Mm-hmm. And the offense to me is every bit as talented. And you could argue maybe even more so at the really high-end level than is the defense. But with today's show, once you get past Michael Mayer as a unit, Every strength we're going to talk about is projection, what we project, what we think will happen, which makes this a much different conversation than the one we had the other day about the defense. It's volatile. I mean, let's call it what it is, right? I agree with you. I would argue, actually, I would, Mm -hmm. you know, I know you said you can. I would argue that I think if both the offense and the defenses hit their ceilings, I might take the offense. I really would. Talent wise, yeah. Talent wise, just from a, a playmaking perspective. Like I think that there is a lot of guys that can break out for this team. That being said, the defensive side of the football has a lot more of a floor, right? Like they have a lot more stay power. They have a lot more known commodity. The offense doesn't even the guys that Mm -hmm. we're incredibly excited about. And again, 
I always think about that sophomore class, right? Like that's the thing that just keeps popping in my head, popping in my head because those guys showed a lot of signs as freshmen and they could all be absolute dudes, but you're still depending on a sophomore in college right. to be your dude, right? right? Like at the end of the day. That's some very about, important positions. That's yes. If you want to talk about volatility, that's volatility. Because <laughs> usually it's like role player, then like junior year, that's usually when breakouts happen, right? But we need sophomores to really break out this year, which makes it a lot of fun because I think that, if and I know we're not going to get specifically into the players right now, but if some of these players do hit right. to their ceiling, then this is a stellar offense. Right. It really can be. Right. But if a couple of guys don't take a step forward, then the floor is much lower yeah. than what we think the defensive yeah. side of football is. So it's just it's a little bit of a younger unit when you really think about it. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You know, it's like when we talk recruiting, right, Ryan? Like we talk floor and ceiling, right? And the guys you want are the high floor and high ceiling guys, right? And if you're going to take a risk, you go with the high floor over the high ceiling when you're talking about the immediate. Like, okay, you need a receiver that can come in and help you in 2022, right, or 2023. Well, you have to have one and you only have two options and one guy's a high ceiling, low floor guy, and the other guy's a high floor guy with not as high of a ceiling, but you need that guy to come in and play right away. You're taking the high floor guy. Right? So in great house. Exactly. Right. So yeah. when you're looking at the 2022 season, you can't wait for the ceilings, right? It's like the floors are going to be what are going to determine where or how quickly guys do tap into their ceiling. And, and as you pointed, I think the point you made is like, you know, we talk about like this guy's a four star player with a four and a half star upside or whatever the case may be. Well, sometimes we've had guys that are like three and a half or three star guys that have like four and a half stars because there's this wide gap between their upside and then their their current rate. And that's the offense. There's so many unknowns from a health standpoint. You know, where's Avery Davis going to be health-wise? Where's Joe Wilkins health-wise? Where's Logan Diggs health-wise? You know, I mean, everybody watches these workout videos, and he looks phenomenal, and he looks great. And, you know, shocker, Logan Diggs has great athleticism and agility and balance, right? Something we've been talking about since their name landed him. But that doesn't have anything to do with his shoulder, <laughs> right, which is what he injured. So there's the unknown of, is he going to be back? And then, boy, if he's back earlier than you thought, man, all of a sudden start getting excited about things. And and then you kind of get into, okay, but there's always but, but. And those are the things that we'll discuss even more tomorrow in tomorrow's show. Because tomorrow we're going to talk about the questions and concerns. And there's more certainty about what the questions are than what mm-hmm. the answers are on offense. And that's what and, makes this interesting. And I would say too, Brian, I would 
this offense is going to create a lot of explosive plays because mm-hmm. there is a lot of talented right. playmakers. There's no doubt. Tyler Buckner, there's going to be a play where like he bends it back and you're like, that's not how that play is designed mm-hmm. on like a zone read. And then he you know takes it 50 yards, right? Chris Tyree is going to hit the wrong gap, but he can still outrun a player to the corner. A wide, a wide receiver is going to make a contested catch where like maybe he didn't stack him properly or he was, just wasn't the, the best tracking the football down the field, but he's got incredible length and athleticism and they can make a play. There's going to be explosive plays no matter how well this offense develops. The question is if it becomes efficient explosiveness, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that right. if it's an efficient offense, then we're talking about even more explosiveness. We're talking about right. more on a play-by-play perspective that you can account for, right? Like right. there's kind of that baseline of I know you think of like the yards before contact, yards after contact, right? And I'm going to make this comparison. This it's like a yak conversation, right? right? There's going to be a lot of explosive plays. It's the question of what are you doing when it's ordinary plays? Like right. that is what you're interested in. I know we talked. You just mentioned Logan Diggs. It's like Logan Diggs will just break off this run, the 15 yard explosive breaks multiple tackles. But then there's sometimes where you just need to slam it up in there, right, and get right. three to four. And right. That's that's the difference for me is that they're going to create explosive plays. Can they be efficient with it? That's the difference between like the 2015 and 2017 offenses for Notre Dame, right? They scored the same number of points, but if you look at it, the the 2015 offense was more consistent. You know, they did score in the games they lost. They were still able to go on the road against a really really good Clemson defense and, you know, score points in the rain. You know, even though their starting quarterback was making what like a second or third career start, right? Like then the 2017 offense, which actually was more explosive, you know, they ripped off like Josh Adams. And this is a crazy stat. And you can thank the great, the, the great legendary loose emoji for this statistic. Cause he gave this one to me. He said, Josh Adams had more runs of 50 plus yards in 2017 than any other Notre Dame back had in his career. Right. I mean, that's nuts. And you had some, but the 2015 offense scored more consistently and, and also had a higher set the school record for yards per play. Why? Because they were more efficient. Now, not efficient enough, right, in a couple of big games, but much more efficient than the 2017 offense, which one week, I mean, there I will, I've said this, there was not a better stretch of offensive play that I've seen at Notre Dame since the ni- late 80s, early 90s, between second half of BC to Wake Forest and what just just pure dominance over opponent than what we saw in 2017. But when they weren't on Georgia, Miami, LSU, they couldn't score. Stanford, they couldn't score because there were so many of the negatives, the zero yard gains, the the throwing the ball into the dirt, the minus three runs and things like that, that it would really kill your offense. And those are the things that, that we'll have to learn about this team is we know, like you said, Ryan, you made a great point. They're going to rip off big plays. They're going to hit big-time home runs this year. They're going to have highlight real stuff. But is it going to be good enough to win a championship? That's going to be determined by the efficiency, and we'll, we'll get into more of that as we go along. But there is one position, right? There's one position on this offense that is a definite strength, and that is tight end, and more specifically, Michael Mayer. I mean, at the end of the day, to compete for championships, in our view, you need stars. We've said this before, and Michael Mayer is a flat-out star. A case could be made, convincing one, mind you, that Michael Mayer is the best football player they have on this team. Now, you know Isaiah Foskey may step up and say, "Hang on a second, I have a, I have a, you know, I have a, I have an argument to make for this," and I'd hope that he does all season. Brandon Joseph, Cam Hart. I mean, there's guys that can be in that conversation, but 
right now, Michael Mayer is Notre Dame's best football player. And if this offense is going to reach its full potential, he needs to play like it. That doesn't mean, right, he's got to go out and catch nine balls for 130 yards every week. Sometimes he is going to play like a star and catch three balls for 32 yards. Mm-hmm. But because he's playing hard and blocking and running his routes and he's forcing defenses to just stay on him and attract to him, it's then going to open up some opportunities for other guys. And I've used this example for my coaching career. We went into a game one time and the opponent just said, we're not going to let Yard and Brantley beat us. We're just not. We're going to double them everywhere we go. So Yard had three catches for six yards, but we threw for well over 300 yards and blew out our opponent because I had two other receivers go for 100 yards. right? And we'll see some of that. If Michael Mayer is playing at a high level, it forces you to stay on him with multiple guys, which then open, opens up opportunities for other guys and takes some of the pressure off of those other guys. So it won't always look like him being a star from a production standpoint, but that doesn't mean he's not their star. And when he does get those one-on-ones, he has to dominate. That's that's a big key for this football team. You said that you think he could argue for the best player on the on the roster. I would agree with you. I think that he has a very good argument for the best tight end in all of college football. Mm-hmm. I know that some people are going to say Brock Bowers, Michael Mayer, and it's a good conversation, you know, because both are special football players. Mm-hmm. The difference and the reason that I would give it to Michael Mayer is because Michael Mayer has flashes in the run games where he's an absolute dominant two-way player, right? Like he's not just a pass receiver. And if he becomes an even more consistent blocker, then to your point, there's going to be weeks where just his presence is enough because he patrolled the run game, set firm edges, you know, was able to, to wall off things in the run game as far as working off tackle and some outside zone stuff working to the second level, combo blocks, doing all those types of things on top of the fact that, I mean, my man just caught, what, 70-something balls for over 800 yards and 71, 840 and seven touchdowns, right? Yeah, so he's a really dynamic football player on top of having that frame where he can also be a dominant blocker. So he brings that, he brings a physicality, and he brings kind of this demeanor to him, Brian, that, like, I would normally – kind of quantify with an offensive lineman a little bit like he Mm -hmm. carries himself like he's a he's a superstar obviously but not a superstar as in like a prima donna way he carries himself as in like i'm going to beat you up today like i am going to dominate you right that is important because that sets a tone he is the tone setter for this offense for this defense for the entire team right because they can look at michael mayer in practice on game day whenever and say i need to play with that type of effort i need to play with that type of physicality so the, the, you know, I think that's a big, I, I love the point you made there. And I was deciding whether I want to dive into that or just kind of move on, but I, I definitely want to dive into that. That's going to be so important for this entire football team. We talked about this in the defense. I wrote an article about it. We talked about it on a show. They have star power, but your stars have to play like stars. And it's not just on Saturdays. You need your guys to lead by example, whether, it, you know, some guys can do it vocally, go for it. Some guys are lead by example, go for it but your stars have to set the agenda set the tone and that's what we're going to see if they can do this year and michael mayer obviously is that guy on offense and even it's, it's even more important for him because there are so few other established stars that are also healthy i mean you know jared patterson's a really good football player he's you know been banged up and, and he's a lineman it's a little different right but you've got him and, and we'll get to, to his unit here in a second but the stars have to play like stars here's another thought too the scary part about michael mayer I know that we can get kind of wrapped up in how he looks. And when you look at him last year, he looks like a grown freaking man. That's already an NFL veteran. He's only gotten thicker. And obviously, you know, he he's had a tremendous off season from everybody I've talked to 
has shown leadership. I've talked about this the other day. I've told, I've talked to multiple sources who are like, yeah, you know, Michael Mayer went up to this kid and was like, Hey, you're working out with me today. Went up to this kid. Hey, you're working out with me today. You know, that kind of stuff. I'm hearing stories about, about things like that. Just kind of showing that leadership because why I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to show you how to work today, but I also, Mm -hmm. it's also, but you're going to push me. I'm going to push you. That's leadership. But here's the thing about Michael Mayer. His game still has plenty of room for improvement. He may look like a finished product, but he's not. You know, you think of the Florida State game, you know, just dropping as good as he was that game. He had a chance to win that game in the fourth quarter, and he drops the ball. Not because he can't catch, because he's thinking about, I'm going to run. He's had that problem in his career at times. I think through the Clemson drop he had in the regular season when he's a freshman, it was the same thing, started to run before he caught it, because he is a good after-the-catch guy. We've seen him have some drops like that. His route running improved last year. It can get better, and his yep. run blocking can get better. So I'm not going to focus too much on the areas where Michael Mayer's got to improve. That's not the point of this. The point of this is to say this guy was a stud last year, arguably the best tight end in college football, but he was a true sophomore, and his game is not finished developing. And if he's working the way we're being told he's working – it's kind of scary to think about what it's going to look like if Michael Mayer's healthy this year uh, and he's got an improved game. Like that's a you, people, who's the alpha? That's him right there and wearing that's number seven. It's so funny, Brian. Like working in the NFL draft side of stuff too. It's like people are always like, oh, you know, he's. I've heard literally people say Michael Mayer's a finished product, and I'm like, no, he's not. Like he's not. It, I think Michael Mayer still has a significantly high oh, yeah. ceiling. I don't think it's anywhere close to it. With how Can I ask you a right question? Now. Do yeah. you think that he's physically close to being? Because I, I think people people look at physically, well, he's he's kind of physically close to being tapped out. I think that's the perception because of how big he looks. But that in in the NFL that matters. Sure. But in college football, that 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 doesn't carry as much weight for me because you're not putting enough on the game. Right. Sure. And that's the thing is some people can improve because they, their bodies need reformation and restoration or transformation or whatever. And in, in, in the NFL, it's more about the game. Right. And that to me, when I look at Michael Mayer, Michael Mayer physically is not going to be that much bigger and stronger than he was last year. It's is his technique better? Is his focus better? Is he is his footwork better when he's trying to block on the edge? Is it is he a little crisper getting into and out of his routes? Is he doing a little better job of of attacking the leverage of the safety to try to manipulate him more effectively? Is he using his hands better when getting off of an aggressive linebacker? All of those things are, you know, is he finishing better? Is he really working his hips around on a reach block? Is he really taking that 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 wide step and then coming through with power on the second step when he's trying to block a nine technique? Those are the things that Michael Mayer still has a lot of room for improvement. And that's a really, really scary thought. And that's where I think you're right, Ryan. I think people are not putting enough the, – the outside pundits are not putting enough on. You're getting wrapped up in what he looks like in his physical dominance. You're sure. not foc- focusing enough on this guy's game still needs a lot of improvement. And we're not saying that to be critical. We're saying that because you know he's going to work to improve it. And he made a comment this spring. He was talking about uh, Jared Parker and how when Jared Parker first came in, the tight ends coach in Notre Dame, he was like the first thing – Mayer made this comment. It was I, w- I wish I could find the comment because it was a really great comment. But he said – you know, he said, uh, I'm actually going to find it because I want to play that. But it was it was kind of funny because you're starting to see a little bit more of Mayer's personality. 
I think I have this saved in in our in our our media thing, so I actually think I can play this. But he made he made a comment about how Jared Parker was kind of like getting on him, and he's like, you know, Coach, I I thought I had a pretty good year last year, you know, and and I really loved that comment. Let me try to let me try to play this. I'm gonna find it while we're talking. Yeah. Well, I mean, Brian, to your point though, I would agree 100 with you. I mean, if we're being completely honest. Michael Mayer as a freshman could have probably physically competed on the NFL level. Yeah. Not saying he would have dominated or right. been this guy right now, but he could have played because of just how physically developed he was coming out. He was an advanced kid from just a, you know, a body type perspective. Right. So I I'm excited though, because to your point, it's about attention to detail, right? Him, right? It's about better angles, it's better right. hand usage as a passer, uh, as right. a route runner, there's so many different things because, that he can do and he's still because the question was, Ryan, you got a new coach. Is the new coach going to be one to come in and push the star? That's always a fair question. And this is what Michael Mayer said about Jared Parker. And I thought this was great. And I, and, and, and Michael's response to it was great. So, uh, Ryan, just give me a thumbs up. If you can hear this when it starts playing a lot of attention to detail with coach Parker, you know, um, he came in here, we went straight into the film room. It was, what do you need to work on? What do you need to work on? And that's what I love. That's what I love about him. He knows that. Um, he's hard on me. That's what I need in the coach. Um, he's going to be very, very hard on me. And um, he's been pushing me to just get better, get better, get better. And I've been getting tremendously better this spring. Coming in to this spring ball, I was like, yeah, you know, I feel like I had a pretty successful season last year. Um, got right into, the, in, into the, uh, the tape with Coach Parker. And right away, it was like, this is what you're doing wrong. This is what you need to change right away. And I was like, dang, Coach, like, I thought I had a pretty good season. But that's the type of thing I'm, I, I like about him. And that's what I'm talking about when I, when I talk about Coach Parker is the very attention to detail, the steps, the, you know, if the defender's here, you can do three different things instead of two different things. You can do five different things when the defender's on this hip, that type of thing. And that's the type of stuff I'm going to improve on. And I have been improving on. Like. It's one thing to for a coach to come in and, and try to coach up the star. It's another thing that's it, a bigger question if the star is going to take it. And I just love Michael's honesty there. Like, dang, coach, I thought I had a pretty good year last year. But then he goes on to say, but I want that. I want him to come in and push me and challenge me. And it sounds like that's gone really well so far. Uh, and, and, and you know, he talked about, like, there are areas where my game can improve. And that's what I love about what they've done because – in the past, I felt like at times, once a guy reached a certain status, the staff wouldn't push him as much as they as they would other guys. And and I like that Jared because I think that's also smart for Jared Parker because he's got to come in and say, hey, look, if I'm going to be critical of him, mm-hmm. you better believe I'm going to be coming and making sure you're improving your game. And and it's just such a such a great it sets a great standard of hey, everyone's going to get coached, and everyone's going to be held to a higher a higher standard. I don't care if you're the guy that shattered every Notre Dame single season record or not. And mm-hmm. and I think that was good. But then for Michael to embrace it the way that he yeah. has, and, th- and he said that publicly, I've also heard that privately, that he's embraced that. It says a lot about what this kid can, can be. And that's what we talk about, Ryan. If you can have that type of player to build around, it does give you a good foundation to start off with when you get to fall camp. Like, hey, we know we've got this. Let's build around this and then see how the rest of the parts kind of fall into place. Well, having your best player being such a hardworking presence to get better to that degree, right? Because your captains and your leaders don't always necessarily have to be your best players. But I feel like with him, I mean, Isaiah Isaiah Foskey is is this way to a degree as well. But people are going to follow Michael Mayer just based upon who he is, right? 
And in, if he has good habits as a worker, people are going to follow behind him, right? So not only is he working to be better at his own craft, I think people are also going to emulate him because they want to be Michael Mayer, not mm-hmm. just in the tight end room. Like they want to be the stars of college football. They want to be preseason All-Americans. They want to be projected to go in the first round. And Michael is just has such a subtle confidence to him but he's not like incredibly outspoken, right? Like, but you just being around him and just watching him, right? Like you can just see it. Like he has a good personality and all that good stuff, but like he can just walk into a room and you're like, that's a dude, you know, like that's right. a dude. And that's what we want to be right there. So he's right. the key to this offense. Cause he's your most proven commodity coming back. Maybe outside of Jared Patterson. We'll argue no, that your, I think he's your most proven commodity. Cause I think Jared Patterson has the most experience. Yeah. But he's never played at the dominant level that Michael Mayer's played at. He's right. flashed it. Michael Mayer was dominant from the beginning of the last season to the end of last season. And Jared mm-hmm. Patterson's never had that kind of season at Notre Dame. So I think that is a that is a very important part of this. And I, I think the final thing, and we'll move on to the next aspect is is on Michael Mayer, is I'm really looking forward to seeing if or how Notre Dame evolves his usage. And, and, and here's some areas I'm going to look for in fall camp when the season starts, I'm going to see, okay, do they move him around more? Do they use him more in the boundary in ways in the pass game, as well as the run game? Do they, do they change how he's used in, in stuff? Like last year, he was almost all intermediate to short stuff. And then he would then use his athleticism and playmaking ability to make people miss or use his strength to make catches. He didn't do a ton vertically. He didn't – He, I mean, you just – you rarely saw Michael Mayer really challenging defenses beyond 15, 20 yards, which has led to some people saying, well, he doesn't project as well as this other tight end because he doesn't stretch the field. Can't and doesn't are two completely different things. And for me, I think with Michael Mayer, it's more of a doesn't, which is not his decision. It's not like he's like, hold on a sec, coach. I don't like that play call. I'm running the seam route instead. That, that's not how it works, right? And – the, the problem he had last year is this is how you – when you talk about O-line play, you know how O-line play hurts everything? If you're Michael Mayer or you're Tommy Reese, I can't call Michael Mayer on a lot of vertical routes. Why? Because I don't have the time to get him the ball, right? We, we can't afford to do certain things. Now, there was early in the season a couple times, you know, he had a – Jack Cohn hit a big wheel route against Toledo early in the game, if you remember that play, uh, Ryan. But on that play where he hit – Mayor about 20 yards down the field on a wheel route. He got hit right in the face as soon as he threw the football, right? You know, because you just didn't have that time to get a, a tight end vertically down the field. Uh, did a little bit against Stanford because Stanford had no pass rush. If you remember in the second half, he had a big play down the field for them. So if the offensive line is as good as we think it's going to be, and we'll talk about that here in a second, then I do hope that we see Michael Mayer's usage expand. I, I am not criticizing Tom Maurice at all for how he was used last year. I get it. You can't ask your best player to go run way down the field if you don't think you can protect. You have to sure. use him to protect the offensive line with by using his size. So that's something I'm curious to see because if he can become more of a vertical threat, Meaning from a usage standpoint, if they will be with more willing to put him into the boundary in 11 personnel, like let's say they're going 11 personnel and they've got Lorenzo Styles and, and Braden Lindsay and Avery Davis on the field. Is it out of the realm of possibility to say, hey, look, let's put Michael Mayer backside and let him play the W position and win. And how's the defense going to react to that? Are they going to keep a cornerback over there? 
which means now I have two of my receivers lined up against a non-cornerback. Are they going to put a safety over there? Which means I'm going to that matchup all day. Are they going to try to put a linebacker out of the box to try to protect against that? Okay, cool. Now I've got my, my, my read zone stuff. I've got my inside zone. Like if he can be effective making plays in them, if you just line him up there, it doesn't do anything. You've got to show that you're willing to throw the ball to him over there on more than just RPO hitches and outs. I mean, are you willing to let him catch some back shoulder stuff, maybe bang some deep end cuts and things like that, run some comeback routes? You know, some of the stuff you do at the boundary position, if you're willing to do that, it puts defenses in a really tough bind when you have a guy as good as him. And we saw this a lot with Tyler Eifert back in 2012 and 2011, well, 2012 more so because in 2011 you had Michael Floyd doing a lot of that stuff. But in 2012, we saw them do that at times. Now, they're not the same player. Right. Tyler Eifert was more, you know, flexible and a little bit more of a you know former receiver playing tight end, which is what he yep. was at you know Bishop Dwanger in high school. Michael, I still think can do a lot of things there. It's just it's going to look a little bit different. But when I compare him to Eifert, Ryan, I'm more of saying the impact that Eifert had when he was there, not saying a tit for tat, you know. Sure. Thing. And look, who 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 benefited from Mayer's ability to do all that stuff? It was Tommy Reese and Ever Golson. Right, who who got to you know throw make some big plays to Tyler Eifert in, in those years together. So I think that's the final piece, Ryan. I'm I'm very curious to see how Tommy Reese and Jared Parker are going to use Michael Mayer this year in regards to expanding his role in the offense. And you know the other thing that does too, Ryan, if you're willing to move him around even more, put him at W, put him at Z, put him at X, it now makes it a lot harder for the defense to game plan around him because you never know where he's going to be. And if you are going to overreact to him, there are things they can do to get you to overreact further outside the box, which then opens up some run game opportunities. Yeah, you know that I'm a big – I am a fan of Tommy Reese's – Tommy Reese has an offensive mind. I think that he can scheme some great things up. And kind of how I talked about the defensive day, about people are going to just have their kind of bullseye on number seven, Isaiah Foskey, right? And just kind of probably going to slide a lot of protections that way, get a couple guys on them, leave some tight ends in at times, all that type of stuff, you know, trade and then get the tight end on them. Like they're going to do a lot of different things to try to, to combat him. I think it's the same way with Michael Mayer on offense. And how do you do that? You don't do, you don't combat that, that theory by just putting him in the same position every play, right? Because mm-hmm. then you're like, I know how to stop that. I just did it this, this play before. I'm going to continue doing the same thing that I'm still doing. You line him up at H. You line, you motion him across the formation. You line him up in the slot. You put him into the boundary. There's a lot of things that you can do with Michael Mayer that you can scheme things open for him, mm-hmm. right? And not only to scheme things open for him, but then to your point, Brian, as he's going in motion across the formation, the eyes are going to 87, right? right? The attention is going to 87, which means there's going to be a one-on-one somewhere else, right? There is mm-hmm. going to be another player that has an advantageous situation, an advantageous one-on-one opportunity. And I personally do believe in Lorenzo Styles getting a one-on-one opportunity. I believe in Brayden Lindsay getting a one-on-one opportunity. I believe in Avery Davis getting a one-on-one opportunity. When those opportunities come... I think that Notre Dame can capitalize on it, but in order to force a defense's hand, and I know Tommy Reese knows this, he's a much smarter football mind than I am. He knows, and I, I'm hoping that we're going to see, is that Michael Mayer can do so many different things for us, and we need it for our offense mm-hmm. to be in as optimal as it possibly can. Uh, final concerns about Michael Mayer, right? He goes to Hollywood, right? All the acting he's doing this offseason, we say jokingly, and as Maysay K says, 
He's good, but I worry if we have a game somewhere and the Jonas Brothers come to town. <laughs> I, I still won't get over that. Like, aha, All-American tight end fell down. That was that was still such a great offseason moment. But yes, I, I, it's going to be – your stars got to play like stars, right? And, and that, in the end of the day, that's what Michael Mayer's got to do. But to your point, the coaches have to then put him in position to maximize his ability to impact the defense. Either way, he's gonna he's gonna be a strength of this team no matter how he's used. If they just repeat what they did last year, he's still about, really good. To say <laughs> if, if he's the same guy he was last year, it's like I said with the defensive <laughs> players the other day, right? If he is the same exact player, then he has an argument for the best tight end in college football. But if he right. takes a step forward, then he it's not an argument. He's one of the best anymore, players right? in college football. Sure, and sure. I think that's that's important to point out though, Ryan, because last year Michael Mayer was one of the three best tight ends in college football, in my opinion. With all due respect to Isaiah Likely and the kid from Colorado State whose name escapes me. At Trey, the, McBride. Trey McBride. Trey McBride. Mm-hmm. With all due respect, their numbers weren't that much better than, than Michael Mayer's, and they were playing against Mountain West teams. You put Michael Sorry. Mayer in the Mountain West, and what did his numbers look like? I mean, he finished in the top five or six in catches, receiving yards, and receiving touchdowns for a tight end last year. And he did so against, you know, with all due respect, tougher competition than Coastal Carolina and – and those type of teams. Obviously, Brock Bowers had a great year last year for Georgia, but to sure. me, those were the two best tight ends of college football last year, in my opinion. And just okay. from an, an impacting the game standpoint, so to your to your point, he will be that bar. You know, as long as health checks out, and and we make that statement just blanket for everyone. There's nothing that we know that we're not saying. That's just always the case, right? As long as is he's able to stay healthy, because we can't it, predict the future. And he did all those numbers while missing a game because he didn't play against Virginia Tech. Yep. Which people also forget when they talk about Tyler Buckner, his one game he played a bunch, he didn't have their best player on the field. I just want to remind people of that. But mm-hmm. when you look at Michael Mayer, if the, taking the next step gets him from being one of the best tight ends to one of the best players, you know, we were asked a question in our mailbag on Friday, you know, who are the five best players of college football coming back? And you had mentioned Michael Mayer. Yeah. He's got, when we talk about, what he's got to prove, he's got to prove he can be that guy. He's not that guy based on what he did last year. That's sure. where the projection comes. But the fact that we can even have that conversation about a tight end where you didn't say that, I was like, hold on a second, buddy. This isn't a Homer show. We don't do that stuff here. The fact that I'm like, yeah, okay, I can see that is because he has that type of ability. Let's mm-hmm. see if he takes it to that level. And that's going to be a very interesting part. But I think a lot of that's going to have to do with does the supporting cast around him step up? He can't do it on his own. He's going to right. have to get help. And every great player to to be productive needs help. Otherwise, good teams can take you out of a game. 100%. So, so let's talk about the next strengths on this team. And these are where we get into a little bit more of projection. And let's be honest, a lot of this projection comes down to the coach. And that's the offensive line. We anticipate the Notre Dame offensive line being a strength this year. And in reading some of the comments in the chat, there's a lot of assuming going on about the offensive line. And normally I push back on that, but this year I'm going to not because, and it's, it's a lot of the focus is on Harry's back and he's a great coach and he's a legend and all that. And that is all true. Yep. But the reality is as good as coach he stand is, and we think he's tremendous Uh, Every offensive line coach I know thinks he's one of the best in the business. Every talent evaluator I know at the NFL level and college level thinks he's one of the best in the business. 
the only people that don't think that are some misguided fans and people that cover the game. Mm-hmm. But that's not why. Because here's the reality. The greatest coach in the world is not taking a kid without talent and turning them into Quentin Nelson. Right? Like, Quentin Nelson gives a lot of credit to, you know, Harry Heastan and that relationship. But Harry Heastan didn't take a two-star kid with no ability and turn him into a great player. God had a big role in that as well. <laughs> sure. You know, his parents and the DNA they gave him had a big role in that as well, right? And uh, and so that's the thing. Yes, Harry Heastan will have a big influence on this, and we'll talk about the Harry Heastan effect. But the biggest reason I think it's going to be a strength of this team, not just, you know, it's going to be good. A strength mm-hmm. of this team is because you're bringing this great coach in, but he's working with a lot of talent. And that's the big thing for me. This is a talented offensive line that I believe is now going to get the direction and guidance it needs to play to its potential. And that's why I believe, and Ryan, I, I know we're on the same page here, that the yeah. Notre Dame offensive line will be a strength, even though we're projecting that onto them because they were not at any point in time last year. I mean, let's be honest about something. We don't project this favorably if there's not talent, right? Like you're, you're right. We're, like we're not misguided in like, oh, there's no talent, but like we think we're gonna be good. Like that's but Harry's sense. back. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. It doesn't make any logist like it doesn't make any logical sense, right? right? So there has to be talent, point blank period. I would say this, Brian, because I have been combing through a lot of teams this offseason just with like the NFL draft stuff and just general college football stuff. I would not if if I, if I was the offensive line coach of this team, if I was Harry Heesan and you told me I can trade your offensive line talent for anybody else in college football, I would not trade what right. Notre Dame has personally. I just wouldn't. I think Blake Fisher, Joe Walt, Jared Patterson, these are some incredibly talented dudes. I would not trade this room as a whole. I'll, I'll, I'll ask you this follow-up question to that. Yeah. You're referring to just pure talent, right? Because there are pure definitely talent. more experienced units out there. 100%. But from a pure talent standpoint, yep. if and you can only say, hey, you can't trade this guy for that guy. You can't say, I'm going to trade this player for Peter Skaronsky. You can't the do that. Room. The, the whole, whole unit, room. you, mm-hmm. yeah, I agree with you. There's not yeah. one I would trade it for. There's I mean, others that are in the ballpark. Sure. Right. But to sure. your point, the, the COVID was kind of weird because there's a lot of offensive linemen that were playing last year that probably would have been gone the year before, if not for COVID. And so you had a lot of fifth and sixth year offensive linemen playing last year, and a lot of teams lost a lot of linemen. Yep. And and that factors into this as well. And you made this point uh, when you're kind of having some NFL draft conversation on Twitter, like this is not a great offensive tackle class. No. It's not a great interior offensive line class either for the draft because yeah. there's a lot of young players, but there's just not a lot of great proven players coming back. So when you look at Notre Dame, they're actually not as inexperienced as you would think when you compare them to a lot of other teams, number one. And number two, the pl- the areas where they're least experienced tackle are their two most naturally physically gifted players and Joe Walton, Blake Fisher. A player that everybody – With all due respect to Jarrett Patterson, by the way. Yeah, and a, a player that people both in college football spheres and NFL drafters that are really excited about, and I am too to a degree – it's Paris Johnson Jr., who we're going right. to see on September 3rd. Well, Joe Alt started more games at left tackle than than Paris Johnson Jr. has, right? Correct. I mean, to your to your conversation about the give experience. context for that because not everybody knows what you're referring to there. Yeah. So Paris Johnson, former five-star recruit at Ohio State, yep. 
is going to be the starting left tackle at Ohio State this year. But as yep. you said, he's not started there before. So, so he's coming into his third year, freshman year, two years ago. He was backing up at offensive tackle, but also playing inside at guard. And then last year, he was the full-time starter at right guard. So he's being projected as a All-American offensive tackle, as a first-round potential draft pick as an offensive tackle. And he has yet to start a single game at offensive tackle on the college football level. So although we all, Notre Dame is depending on sophomores to be their dudes at offensive tackle even Blake Fisher has started more games at left tackle than Paris Johnson Jr. has right so while it may be inexperienced in an age perspective Notre Dame has more experience to Brian's point than some players that are getting a lot of more national recognition at this point and are getting this fanfare and I mean I'm I'm so excited man it's not often that you have this blend of talent and there is some experience like let's not just throw out jared patterson and josh Logan, those right. dudes that have played a lot of football and z Carell has played a lot of football as well it hasn't always sure. been good andrew christophic look they've got eight guys eight guys coming back next year am i holding up eight one two three four five eight guys <laughs> that have started at least two college football games coming back there's not a lot of teams that can say that right no. now not all those starts were Good quality, quality right? Starts, but it yeah. is experience, and the the lack of quality had a lot to do with the fact that they weren't coached well. But you got Michael Carmody that nobody talks about. Michael Carmody, that kid is a big, strong, athletic kid who started two games at left tackle in last year. He's moved inside; he can play center and guard now. And we're not even talking about him. There's a lot of teams on Notre Dame's schedule that would say, "Hey, I'll take Michael Carmody. I'll sure. I'll take Tosh Baker. Give me Andrew Kristoffic if you guys don't want to start him. You know, oh, we'll okay. take him." If they went in the transfer portal right now, their phone would be off the hook. Oh, yeah, they would have to tra- change their number. Like, let's Absolutely. be honest about it. Hundred percent. Absolutely. Let's not give them any ideas. Actually, the deadline's passed, sure. so it's all good. That's fair. But but the depth is outstanding, and we haven't even got into Rocco Spindler and Caleb Johnson, and and obviously Billy Shrouth, who's now coming in, and guys like that. So it's not just about they got five guys and everything has to go perfectly. They have depth. And they have guys that can play. And I, and you talk about some, sometimes bad experience can be good for you because it prepares you to go be successful moving forward. And that's, you know, look at like a Tosh Baker. You know, Tosh really failed last year for the first time in his life because he couldn't just rely on being so much better than every, everyone around him and being long and, and athletic and all that other kind of stuff. And, and so to me, when I when I look at this, Ryan, it's, it's you know, you, you kind of thought you went into that game and you're like, well, we're going to see what Blake Fisher and uh, Joe Alder are all about because they're going against the, you know, the, the the most productive pass rushing unit. I don't say best. I've said best a lot. And, and when I say best, I'm referring statistically. Productive, they were yeah. the best pass rushing team statistically last year in regards to sex. And so to me, they held their own on 70 plus pass snaps. I mean, they threw 68 times, but there was over 70 pass calls in the game. And they more than held their own against mm-hmm. the best pass rushing unit in the country last year, statistically. And, and, and it was good talent-wise, too. I mean, Brock Martin and Colin Oliver and guys like that, they could get after. They brought a lot of pressures. They yeah. and, and Oklahoma or Oklahoma State didn't just line up and say, we're going to rush our four. I mean, they're, they're bringing pressures from all over the place. And they held their own. And, and there aren't a whole lot of pass rushes that Notre Dame's going to face this year that are better than that one. And they did that as freshmen without the extra experience that they're well, going to have this offseason. I was going to say it was a nice showing by the tackles as well because Brock Martin and Colin Oliver are also very different pass rushers, right? right? I mean, Brock Martin is a little bit of a sawed-off power plug of a rusher. Experience, savvy, and advanced repertoire. And usage, exactly. Colin Oliver was a freshman who he was running the track, man. He was running as fast as he possibly could. 
So they were seeing very different players, which gives me a lot of room for hope, especially because, I mean, sometimes you'll have a undersized offensive tackle on the college level who can just wash out a speed rusher, right? Because he has those athletic traits, but then when he gets a really strong bull rusher, that gives him some problems. But the fact that this offensive tackle duo saw both types in the same game that were, I mean, what they combined for like 20 sacks or so last year, like they were a highly productive duo. The fact that they held their own against that duo that is that different, I think is a big barometer of things that are moving forward. And the number of snaps that they had, like that's the other thing is like to, to your point, it was at 19 and a half is what Colin Oliver and, and, uh, Brock Martin had last year, just the two of them, as you mentioned. Yep. Yep. And, and, you know, they, they finished the year last year with 56 sacks as a, as a team. So Ryan, the, the other part too, is this, I think is going to be a much bigger Notre Dame offensive line than we've seen in recent years too. Yeah. Last couple last year's offensive line was a little undersized because you did have Zeke Carell at, at, at left center. Or I mean, left center left guard, you know, Kane Madden was, was listed big, but wasn't really big. He was kind of short, you know, Josh Luggett, right tackle, you know, you had Blake, but like, you're going to be so much bigger this year because, you know, Josh is in, and big is not always just pure weight. It's like length. You just, you went from a barely six feet tall, you know, 305, what was the Kane Madden listed? Like 305 right yeah. guard and Kane Madden to now an almost six foot eight, 310 plus pound right guard. You know, Blake Fisher's is what he is, right? You know, we're talking about the unit they had for most of the season. Mm-hmm. Joe Walt was listed at 6'6", 305 last year. He's now listed at 6'7". I would imagine he's going to be over 310 this year in, in the roster. I would imagine when it comes out on Friday. Yep. You know, Zeke Carell's now at center where his size is is not as the issue that it would be as a pure guard. Because guards get – the reason we say this, guards tend to get in more ISO scenarios where mm-hmm. centers are almost never playing – alone they're always gonna have one of the guards is almost always going to be with them where guards yeah. you know if the other guards working with the center the tackle may be over here and I'm, I'm i gotta handle my own business right now he's outside you know he's inside and jared patterson's outside who's listed at 307 so you're gonna have a much bigger line this year too and and i think when you combine that with the teaching they're going to get from harry Heastan and chris watt mind you right because remember chris watt was the one it, it, the the one difference in 2020 that there, there didn't exist in 18, 19, 21 when the offensive lines weren't as good. Right. And and they weren't as physical because they were physical in 2020. They were finesse in 19, finesse in 18, finesse in 21 because of the coaching. Mm-hmm. They're both going to be back. And so you're gonna you're gonna just see that the mentality is going to be different too. That's the other biggest thing is the mentality of this offensive line. And we started to see it in the spring. They didn't play great in the spring game, but they played hard in the spring game and that was a key i mean even just watching zeke Carell just busting it downfield on that screen pass to to darian price where he's just like little little legs are moving 100 miles an hour you know he's getting down there (laughs) setting up that setting up that screen for a touchdown and so but the other part that's the other part though this is going to be a pretty athletic offensive line for its size as well joe walt's pretty good athlete blake fisher's an exceptional athlete for his size jared patterson's an athletic player i think zeke Carell is an athletic player your least athletic guy is arguably Josh Lug, who last year was arguably your second or third most athletic guy, depending on who was in the game at certain spots. Because Michael Carmody's athleticism did not play well at tackle. 
it plays right. better inside. He was a little tight and stiff because his footwork was bad. At times, he was your second or third best athlete on the offensive line. Now he's arguably number five, which mm-hmm. speaks to just how, again, what why we believe the talent is going to be better. And I, I think it's the athleticism for the position they play too, right? Like it's it's the it's like the fundamental fit into mm-hmm. the spot. Like Josh right. Lug at guard is a much better athlete than Josh Lug at tackle, right? In, in Explain a what that means because it's about what you're asking. It's athleticism sure. relative to the space and the responsibilities that you'll have. Explain that. Yeah. So when when Josh Lug is at tackle, for instance, right, we know that he's a shorter armed guy. We've talked about this before. He's got like sub 32 inch arms, which is still bizarre for a guy that's six foot seven. Like that is very odd, odd type of arm length. But so when you don't have great arm length at tackle, you need to have an overcompensating trait. And I talk about this all the time. You need to have foot quickness, right? Like you need to overcompensate for that lack of length because you're playing in increased space when you're playing offensive tackle. When you're a guard, that doesn't matter as much, right? So while he was a solid enough player to play at right tackle from an athleticism perspective, not only is the length going to be better inside, his athleticism is also going to be much better inside because he doesn't mm-hmm. have to travel as far. He has condensed space. So with that in mind, Joel, I'm Joel, um, <laughs> Josh Lug just went from an average athlete at right tackle to a good athlete at guard. That's what he just did in my opinion. And Across the board, it's like Zeke Carell is a good athlete at center. Jared Patterson is a very good athlete for guard. Left tackle, Joe Alt is a very good athlete for left tackle. Blake Fisher is a silly athlete for right tackle. So and for his board, size. For yes, his size. Right. Pertinence to size and the position you play. Exceptional athletes across the board. There is no player that is a average to below average athlete for their position everybody is a plus athlete in my opinion on this offensive line right now for their position now there are questions this offensive line has to answer right I mean how good is Zeke Crow going to be is does Jarrett Patterson healthy all those things are legitimate questions but that's why we discussed the depth at the beginning because if for some reason let's say Jarrett Patterson's out for the first couple games I'm just throwing this out there hypothetically. I'm not hearing anything about him not being back for fall camp. I'm just throwing this out there as an example. Okay, you've got Andrew Kristofik, who started seven games last year, ready to go. You've got Rocco Spindler. You've got guys that can slide. Michael Carmody, who started two games, who could slide into that role. You have bodies. Let's say something happens to one of the tackles. You've got Tosh Baker making improvements. We've heard that he's had a great spring and offseason in regards to taking his game to the next level, those type of things. And so, to me... That's the other thing is your margin for error on the offensive line is greater because you have the depth and the coaching that you're more confident that guys like Tosh Baker and Michael Carmody and Andrew Kristoffick and Caleb Johnson and Bill Rocco Spindler and Billy Shrouth are going to be further along in their development because they're going to be coached better by, again, Harry Heastan and Chris Watt. And here's why I say that's important. Number one, there's always good to have two sets of intelligent eyes, right? And remember, Chris Watt was a Division I offensive line coach last year, right? Number two, it's it's much easier when you're coaching offensive line to be able to break them up into groups, smaller groups, you know, center, right guard, right tackle, center, left guard, left tackle. Mm -hmm. And and those are ways where you you can have more focused coaching, but also you can maximize reps. The problem, however, is if you don't have a GA or an assistant coach that you trust to coach to that level, you're either going to have the second group be your number twos or you're going to take less, more time 
to to say, okay, I'm going to go to this drill. Then I got to walk over here and watch this drill. And then I got to coach up and then I go, and you're not getting as much work in. What we have seen from Coach Heastan is that there's a lot of faith there in Chris Watt. And they've got Trevor Mendelson, someone else who's developed a really strong reputation as a young offensive line coach working as an analyst. So you now have three sets of eyes that are respected in the program in regard to looking at the offensive line. But in from a practice standpoint, since I believe Coach Mendelson is an analyst, so he won't be doing like on-field coaching. He'll be yeah. more film room breakdowns and stuff like that. But the point is, you can go bam, 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 bam. And Coach Easton can be coaching up this kid over here. And Coach Watt can be coaching up this kid over here. And you know they're being told the same thing. Because where did Chris Watt learn what he knows? From Harry Easton. That is something that we're not talking enough about in regard to, to really coaching up the whole unit because you now have two trusted, knowledgeable voices that we all know are going to be on the same page because one is the mentor, one is the mentee. That is also a, a thing that gives me great confidence because you feel like with Coach Watt being there, some of these younger guys are going to be even more prepared. Number one, Coach Heastan works with those guys. As, as Charles Jagasaw has noted, to Irish breakdown in the past, like he was impressed with how much coach Easton coached up the younger guys at practice that he went to. Right. And we've seen that when we, when he was here last time, but when, when you look at it, the fact that he doesn't have to stop everything to go coach a kid, if he sees Chris Watt getting on a kid, there's going to be like a, okay, I'll now go back and look at this in the film room and see what happened, but he's got that. Right. Right. And that's a big, big key. So, it, it, just, it just it's all those things are the talent, depth, great coaching, change in attitude, change in philosophy are all the reasons why we are very comfortably projecting this offensive line to be a strength. And 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 I'd be surprised if it's not one of the best lines in the country. I think they go into the season clear top 10. I would argue top five ish because they still have to prove it right. Like Lindy's had a number one. That's as big of a projection as you can get. Will I be shocked if Lindy's, Lindy's is right? Not at all. Not at all. I'm just not comfortable going there yet, Ryan, because that we do need to see it, and they were so bad last year for much of the season. So I, I'm not quite ready to go there yet in regard to saying they won best line in college football. They got to prove it to me. Sure. But will and I be shocked if that's the truth at some point in time? No, I won't. I won't. It's it's what have you done for me lately, right? I mean, the last time we saw this Notre Dame offensive line, although it was better than it had been early on in the season, still wasn't a great unit, right? Like they were a solid unit at the end of the year, but they were not a good unit. So although you get excited with, like you said, there's a combination, there's talents, there's coaches, there's multiple eyes, there's multiple understandings of the overall vision of the offensive line and how they want to coach. Absolutely. But they still need to make it happen, right? Like you still need to see it. It's everyone keeps asking about Marcus Freeman as a game day coach, for instance, right? And it's just like I, I have confidence that it's going to look good, but until you see it, you just don't know, right? Like you just don't know what this offensive line is going to be until you see it on game day. So I'm excited about it because I think you hit the nail on the head. They have everything they need to be a very successful offensive line. They have the tutelage up top. They have multiple people underneath Coach Heastan that can give the job done as well. I mean, Chris Watts, a fantastic young coach, in my opinion. You mentioned Mendelssohn, who's going to have some some authority as far as, you know, from the film room perspective and just the daily understanding of the younger players, especially kind of getting better. But you have to tangibly see it. So it's going to be a question mark until we see it. But I am very, very positive for where this team's going to be. 
because reputation matters. And right. what Coach Eastan did the first time around, I have no reason to think that he won't get similar results this time around. I can't personally speak for Trevor Mendelson. I want to make sure that I'm clear on that. I, I have no opinion of Trevor Mendelson because since he's been at Notre Dame, I haven't been able to be at practices. So I, I can't – like when I would watch other coaches, I would see them coaching. I'm like, hey, that guy's doing a good job or not. So I can't, but people I know and people whose football opinion I actually respect think very highly of Trevor Mendelson. And so that's why he is still at Notre Dame, even though they wanted Chris Watt as the GA. So the fact that he's still here, Harry Heastan's not going to let somebody be around the O-line room that he doesn't respect. And so I'm just saying, I just want to make sure I'm clear. I'm not speaking highly of Trevor Mendelson because I don't know him. I don't know anything about him. I've never, I've never seen him coach. I'm just repeat. Like I said, I'm repeating. People I know have a very high opinion of him, and and so I, I think that's why you know. So like, I think it's going to be positive based on what I've heard about him. But I just, I always like to be clear, Ryan, when I'm giving yeah. you my opinion or something that's coming from somebody else. And as I thought about what I said about him, it, it came across as if I was giving you my opinion of Trevor Mendelson, and and I just want to make sure that I'm clear everybody yeah. about that that's not my opinion I, I don't have an opinion one way or another I, I can't give you an opinion of something without data and I'm not blaming a GA for the O-line not being good when the O-line coach isn't good because again Chris Watt is a was a different animal than Tre- like Trevor Mendelson last year because Chris Watt stepped into the room having a relationship with the players already they knew him they sought him out and they were coming from the same background that he came from as guys that were played under Harry he stand and, and, and Coach Mendelson didn't have that opportunity last year because, as we said last season, that was the first time you had an offensive line made up almost entirely of Jeff Quinn recruits and guys that only played for Jeff Quinn. So I just want to make sure I'm clear on that. And and to the final point about maybe Coach Eastan is you mentioned this before, Brian, when we talked about it. The one year that he was able to team up with Matt Bayless as the strength coach. Right. It was a decent offensive yes. line that year. There was that le- that care. We had a super chat from Doc2159, which, by the way, I love the fact he's got the Val Kilmer Doc Holiday as his avatar. It's my wife and I were – after we went saw Top Gun Maverick the other day. I hadn't seen it yet. Phenomenal. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Uh, Ryan, if you haven't seen it yet? I have not seen Dude, it. Dude, you got to go see it. In the yeah. theater. It's a definitely a theater movie first. But anyway. Uh, can, can I get booed real quick? I'm going to get booed from the chat for a I don't second. care if you didn't like the first one. you got to go see this one. I've seen the first one. Well, you're young. It came out a little bit before you. But watch the first one okay. before you go. I heard, it was on, better than, I heard it was better than the, the first one. It was. One. It yeah. was. Much more – act, but the, part of that's technology. Is, I mean, that was made in like 86. But anyway, uh, best character Val Kilmer ever played, Val Kilmer was in both of them, uh, was Doc Holliday in tombstone tremendous tremendous but anyway he says he stand improved the 2020 2012 offensive line versus 2011 in his first year and they didn't have the talent that 2022 has and they didn't have matt bayless and that's a great point and also if you remember from 2011 to 2012 they lost the right side of their offensive line from the 2011 team as well because mm-hmm. and, and remember braxton cave got hurt the year before so he wasn't even full 100 full speed compared to what he was in 10 and 11 in 2012 and they lost Trevor Robinson at right guard, and they lost the late Taylor Dever at right tackle. So they lost both of those guys. So then they replaced them with Mike Golick Jr. and Christian Lombard and, yeah. and, and had a much better offensive line in 2012. So you're absolutely right, Doc. And, and as you said, I love the, the part about he didn't have Matt Bayless, and that's a huge, huge piece of this. 100%. 
Before we move on to the next strength, I do want to say Ben Minich, the 2023 safety from Ohio, did announce on Twitter about, about two minutes ago that he will be making a decision on Friday, August 5th at 6 p.m. Eastern. He will announce on CBS Sports. We will be live for that on Friday at 6 p.m. And he will choose between Notre Dame, Oklahoma, Stanford, Kentucky, and Cincinnati. So we like where Notre Dame is going into this decision, but Ben Minich will be making a decision on Friday. So, Ryan, let's move on to our next topic. This is where I think is the bigger leap because there's an asterisk by it, and that's running back. And the reason I say there's an asterisk by it is because this doesn't become true until Logan Diggs comes back. Mm-hmm. And and the reason I say that is, is, is I believe that if Chris Tyree and Audric Estime are the one, two punch at running back, they're going to be really good. Sure. But I do worry about the depth at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Once Logan Diggs comes back, then the depth no longer becomes an issue and it becomes an even greater strength. So like it's a strength even without him, but it's a question mark because you're an injury away from being in big trouble. Once he mm-hmm. comes back, and whether that's in September, October, November, I don't know the answer to that. But whenever he comes back, this is going to be a significant strength. And the earlier he comes back, the better – because then they don't have to hold down the fort quite as long in, in regard to taking on as a lot of those carries right. and the wear and tear. So, but I truly believe, and I and I know this is probably the most, I say not controversial, but debatable. People will debate. Uh, <laughs> that's the definition of debatable. Uh, the, the, where's the uh, where's the uh, the grammar police? Are they coming? I know, right? I know, right? Um, but to me. The the it's it there's I mean Chris Tyree had two hundred some yards rushing last year. Logan Diggs had two hundred some yards rushing last year. Averaged around four point two yards per carry. Logan Diggs had seven carry or uh, Audric Estime had seven carries in in the whole year. Now yes, Chris Tyree looked much better two years ago, but he still only had like four hundred ninety six yards, I believe, something like that. And he averaged six point eight yards per carry. But a lot of those carries were like kind of coming in, getting one carry here. He had a reverse against Georgia Tech. You know, came in for one carry against Clemson. Of course, took it for a touchdown against the first team defense. But that's a different conversation for a different day. Yep. But actually, we don't have to have that conversation anymore because that coach isn't here anymore. But the the point is, there's a lot of talent here, and and unlike offensive line and quarterback, I don't care about experience at running back. I don't. It, running back receivers this way to a degree, but to me, there's not a position in football where I care less about experience than running back. I I just really don't care. It is the most instinctive position, in my opinion. Best advice I ever got as a coach. My second year as a coach, I, I got hired to coach running backs. I played quarterback in my career, right? And and I'd coached for, you know, or I'd coach like with the quarterbacks the year before. I played a little bit receiver in high school, played receiver as a freshman in college. Like, that's where I was. I didn't know anything about running back. I'd never taken a handoff before, like other than like a jet sweep. And so, I mean, I'm learning because, you know, I knew the game, but the, the the best bit of advice I ever got from from our offensive coordinator at the time, who's now, I, I think, the was the athletic director at Muhlenberg for a long time, is he said, listen, there comes a point in time where you need to coach the heck out of these backs to the, to the point where the ball is handed off to them. After that, leave them alone because he's like your job is to teach them footwork and timing because like on an inside zone if you get downhill too quickly the hole's not open up yet if you get downhill too slowly the hole's closed up by the time you get there you got to stay on your track you got to teach them how to follow the track how to properly take a handoff you know putting the ball inside outside arm 
But at this, but once the ball's in their hand, with the exception of you know which arm to put it in, you got to just go let them be who they are, and and that's one of the truest things I've ever seen in coaching. With a running back, like once he gets the ball, just let him do his thing, and it and just the technique that goes into it is just not as complex as it is, and that's not disrespectful to the to the position. It's just the reality of it, but. I just don't care about experience. So, so all that proven production stuff doesn't mean, do you have talent or not? Do you have the diversity right in your backfield or not? You used the word multiplicity yesterday. That is a football word. No question about it. I don't know if it's, it's it's a word in other areas, but yes, you have a lot of different skill sets. You can hammer them. You can, when Chris Tyree is on the field, you got to defend him differently than when Aldrich estimates on the field. And you got to defend him differently than when Logan Diggs is on the field. Mm-hmm. And and to me, it just makes for a p- potentially very dangerous group that can hurt you in between the tackles, can hurt you on the perimeter, and can hurt you in the pass game. And that's why Ryan has said many times, if this group stays healthy, they will be one of the best running back groups in the country this year. Ryan, you have said that emphatically multiple times. No, of course you agree. I'm I saying know, you said myself. that. <laughs> I agree with Brian, myself. That, that's Brian, a great that was- point. Ryan, that guy that sounds pro- wicked smart. Ryan, that was profound. That was a <laughs> profound conversation. Um, yeah, I, I do, though. I mean, I really do. And, and the biggest reason I say that is one thing that you just said was the multiplicity of it, right? It's the fact that they're all different. Like, none of the, these are carbon copies. And there's some offenses that – and there's some offensive coaches that just want the same guy. You know, like I feel I think of, like, Oregon last year where you had C.J. Verdell and then you had Travis Dye, and they're, like, kind of the same type of player, right? But – Notre Dame does not have the same type of player, and I think that that benefits this offense specifically because it is going to be a committee approach. I don't think one of these players is going to be the 80% ball carrier of 100% of this of the carries this year, right? But you have a guy in Audrey Estimate that's 230 pounds that can do the downhill physicality stuff with good feet to boot. You have Chris Tyree, who you're – one bad gap, one linebacker taking the firing the wrong gap away from a 70 yard touchdown. And then you have Logan Dix, who's kind of a mix and match guy. Like he can do a little bit of everything. He's 250 pounds solidly, has good feet, can break some long runs. He's not going to break as many as Chris Tyree. But the fact that you have all three of these guys that are such different football players gets me so excited, man. Because it's, I'm just thinking it as a linebacker, right? As a linebacker. All game, I'm going up and I'm tackling this 230-pound hammer of Audric Estime, right? And then I'm taking my same read. I'm post-trigger and I'm coming downhill. And then, oh, it's a changeup. They put Chris Tyree in the game. And then he starts to stretch me laterally and then cuts up on me. And I'm like, oh, I didn't just see that a minute ago. Like, this is terrible now, right? And so, how quickly you think you can close on Logan Diggs and Audric Estime is going to be a whole lot different than how you're going to close on Chris Tyree. The body language you're going to have when you're about to square up Chris Tyree is going to be different than when you square up Logan Diggs. And it's going to be different than you square up Audric Estime. With Estime, you're worried he's going to run over you. With Diggs, you're like, how's he going to shake me? And with Tyree, it's like, is he about to run by me even though I have the angle? Right? right. I mean – it's man, Ryan, it, it, you could not have a more different group of players, but here's the key. The diversity can become a problem. If it means you can't run your offense, you can't have three different run offenses for them. So like, we're going to be all man schemes and Audrick's in the game. We're going to be all zone and misdirection when he's in the game. And we're going to go gap pin and pull when Logan Diggs is in the game. You can't do that. Right. And that's the thing is I like how they're, they are diverse, but they all fit the offense. They can all run the same stuff. It's just this may be more 
heavy when he's in the game. This may be more heavy when he's in the game. That's an important piece of this, Ryan, because that's not always true. Not all running backs fit every scheme, right? And and that's an important piece of this too, is just because they have the diverse skill set doesn't mean that they're going to fit really well together when you get down to practically building a game plan. Right. And that's the other important piece of this conversation is they can all execute the schemes that Notre Dame likes to employ. They, their strengths within those schemes may be different, but they can sure. all ex- execute those schemes. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be wrinkles and there's going to be some specialization to if one backs in comparative to the other. Like, there's always going to be that. But to your point, they can all do everything that you need to do in the system. And that is – it's especially important – that Tommy Reese understands what the strength of his running back is, right? To put them in advantageous situations. Do we see some two back sets where we're able to use that multiplicity? Like there's a lot of things that you can do with these three running backs that I'm very excited about. And I mean, again, the meshing of skill sets just gets me so excited because as a defensive coordinator, it would give me headaches. Oh, this guy's in the game. He didn't do this, but also he can still fit into what they want to do philosophically. Like this isn't a, a shift of like, to your point that you need to completely departmentalize. You don't have to departmentalize for these guys. There might be a niche that fits them best in the structure of your offense, but you don't have to change your offensive structure. So running back, we expect to be a strength. Yes. They all have parts of their game. They got to get better at right. Chris Tyree has got to be, you know, a guy that's a little bit more clean with his technique. At times he gets a little too choppy. You know, he's got to be real efficient because if he's efficient with his footwork, he's going to be a dominant player in this offense. Audric Estime has to just get more used to stepping up. Like I went back and watched the the uh, the Fiesta Bowl the other day, and he's, he'll, he'll arrive with force and pass protection, but he would kind of sit back right in front of the quarterback, right? Those are things he can learn, like, you know, really step up into that, right? Get used to the volume. Logan Diggs has to be more assertive, like no win – to bounce that sucker outside and do what you do, like get in space and do your thing and know when to put your foot in the ground and get vertical, get with authority. Once you get past the yard marker, then you can go do your thing, but you're going to be on your vertical track until you get past the, the, the first down sticks, then go, then go dance and do what you do, do what you do. And then there's times like, Hey man, you got to spin out of that sucker and go make miracles happen. Right. There's going to be that as well. But they have all got aspects of their game they can improve upon, but they're all things that are just normal improvements that come with good coaching. I think they were coached well under Lance Taylor. I think Dylan McCullough is even more specialized as a running back coach, which is important. You know, I think Lance Taylor, I mean, could coach running backs well, but he kind of taught the broad spectrum of it, which Dylan will. But I think Dylan will be even more focused in on the little parts of of the of the technique to go to playing running back. So once again, running back, we expect to be a big strength for this football team. I know, and I didn't even mention about Coach McCullough there, man. I mean, mm-hmm. he has a reputation as one of the best developer of running backs just in general. I mean, if you look at what he did at Indiana there for a little bit with guys like Jordan Howard only for a year and Tevin Coleman, and then what he did with USC his one year with Ronald Jones, and then what he did with the Chiefs. I mean, he is a absolute vi- – I mean – he is one of the best developers of talent at the running back position in college football. I would put him up against any coach just based upon what I've heard as far as just his reputation as a running back coach. So I think that's another important thing, Brian, is that kind of our, our offensive line talk, right? There's talent in the room. Obviously the running back has a running back room has a ton of talent and you also have a developer with a proven track record and resume that you have to think will get the most out of this group. Ryan, last, last topic, and agree with you on Coach McCullough. 
we we kind of discussed this before the show started because it's kind of like how do we take this? Like so we talked about a lot of these things, but here here's the deal. There are question marks at quarterback. Big question marks. And this we're not going to talk about Tyler Buckner in this show as a strength because he's got a lot to prove. Receiver. We're not talking about any of the receivers because they have a lot to prove. But when you look at this in its totality, the one thing that we kept coming back to about this team is I don't know what the receiver is going to be this year, but dot dot mm-hmm. dot there's talent. I don't know. You know, we we we're projecting, we're more comfortable projecting the running back and because of the talent where we're we're we are both optimistic that tyler buckner is going to be really good this year dot 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 because of the talent mm-hmm. and and a lot of it has to do with the athleticism of this football team you look at tight end and you look at kane barong and holden stace and eli raritan is just really unique athletes for that position and then of course michael mayer you know receiver you've got some burners in lorenzo styles and and Braden Lindsay, you've got Avery Davis, if healthy, is a sub four or five guy. You know, you've got some big athletic guys like Deion Colsey has unique athleticism for his size. We know about Tobias running back, some really dynamic athletes. Tyler Buckner, if if he is who we think he is, will be one of the more dynamic athletes at quarterback in the country this year. The one thing I know is that this group is talent is 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 athletic, and the reason that's important, Ryan, is because I'm always going to be more optimistic or comfortable feeling like I'm going to get the most out of my guys. If I know that the one thing that's already there is the talent. If the talent's not there and I got to kind of coach them into production, then that makes me nervous when we get it. We'll beat, you know, if I'm a coach in their name, we'll beat Marshall with these guys and Cal with these guys and UNLV and Syracuse. We'll, we'll win eight, nine games this year with really well coached, tough, hard nosed kids that maybe just don't have the ability. We'll we'll still go nine and three, right? But to beat those better teams, at the end of the day, yeah, your coaching is good. But you know what? That those teams are good too because they're also well coached. Sure. Clemson was very well coached under Dabo. Georgia is is fundamentally well coached. I'm not a big fan of da- of Kirby as a game day coach with some of the decisions he makes. Mm-hmm. But Georgia is he does a great job on Monday to Friday, which is yep. why it, it, with the exception of the the punt safe fake in the SEC championship back in, was it 18? Yes. Uh, his, his poor game day decisions have not hurt them because they are so well-prepared Monday to Friday, Alabama. Mm-hmm. One of the bit, the biggest misconceptions of Alabama was that they, that, that they're just more talented than everybody else. But the, in, in the past, they are a very fundamentally sound football team. I actually think that's something that's hurt Alabama a little bit in, in, a, in a few years. Sarkeesian brought that back a little bit on offense. But mm-hmm. one thing that I think hurt their offense this year, and one thing that I think's hurt them the last couple of years under Pete Golding, they're a very undisciplined defense compared to what they used to be. They're not nearly as fundamentally sound. They rely on their talent far more now than they used to because I've been hard on the Alabama defense. But if you go back and look at some of the early Bama defenses, the actual talent is arguably better than it was back then, especially in the front seven. They're yeah. not as productive or dominant because they're not as sound. And that's that's been one of the reasons I've kind of seen Al- – I, I think Alabama's kind of not quite as dominant as they were re- in recent seasons because they're not as well coached defensively. But when they were rolling, that's what was often misplaced. That's why so many of their players go to the NFL and don't pan out. Like, we've said this. Alabama players consistently get overdrafted. Why? Because they play better than their actual talent. 
because of how well they were coached. That hasn't been quite the same in recent years, but that's kind of where I feel good about it, Ryan, because if the baseline of talent is high enough and you have faith in the coaching, it gives you optimism. And that combination right there, the talent's there. Mm -hmm. It's just, can you coach it? It's part of the reason for our optimism because that's something we are far more confident in this year than we were last year is the coaching is going to be there. And I think that's why you, you might hear a sense of, of optimism and, and, and kind of dismissing some of the concerns some people have because we have a great deal of confidence in the, the talent that is there. And we now believe that that talent is going to get maximized. We got to see that. And we'll talk about those tomorrow and the concerns, but sure. man, when you can start with a baseline of talent like this, you, you got a chance to do something. Look, you can't you you can't fake talent. I mean, what what are you going to say about it, right? Like you can't you can design, manufacture smoke and mirrors to a degree when you're a coach, but you cannot fake talent at the end of the day. And there is an extreme ceiling for how good a team can be if they lack talent in certain situations, right? There's a cap that that you kind of have on yourself. I mean, Brian, I think of you're talking about well coached teams. Like I don't know why, but one of the first teams I thought about was. Iowa under coach Ferentz, right? It's like Iowa is always an incredibly well-coached team. Mm-hmm. Ferentz gets absolutely, mo- I mean, they won, I think they won 10 games last year. Like they're yeah. a, a good Played in the big team. 10 title game. Right. Yeah. Like you're a good football team. They won 10 games are extremely well-coached coach. Coach Ferentz does a tremendous job with the Hawkeyes, but the Hawkeyes are never going to make that ascension to being a big 10 contender ish right. team to a national title right. contender. Because they can't get the talent right. in the door. That's why right? they're t- they're ten and two to get to the title game, but they got blasted by Michigan, who had way better players, and they lost to Kentucky, who just had better athletes. I mean, that's the, the thing that hurts them. And, and and then look at the games they lost last year. They lost to Wisconsin and Purdue. Wisconsin's mm-hmm. equally, you know, was equally well coached in certain areas, but Purdue just had better athletes than they had last year. They had the two best players in the field that when those two teams played were the two kids that Purdue had and, and Carl Loftus yes. and David Bell. Yep. And and that's the thing that holds them back. Whenever they get on that big, big stage. They don't win those games because I even think back to when Brad Banks went against Carson Palmer in the Orange Bowl. That was an incredibly well-coached Iowa football team. They had no mm-hmm. chance against USC because at the end of the day, USC was a, a, a decently coached football team as well and under Pete, would you say? But they yes. just had way better players. So 100%. even though Iowa played well in that mm-hmm. game, and they always do, they end up not winning because at the end of the day, when you're playing on the big stage, the other team is usually also well-coached. 100%. But their their players are better. And I think that's a great analogy. If there's the cap to just how good Iowa can be because they don't have the guys. I, I have another analogy, which is going to be a weirder one for you, Brian. So I, sometimes when I'm decompressing at the end of the day, when I'm just trying to relax for a couple minutes, I play a baseball game on my phone. I forget what it's even called. But you basically have your roster and you can develop the players. And, you know, as you give them extra batting practice and all that good stuff, they become better players. Their overall goes up, right? But the thing I like about the game is that eventually the players get capped at an overall. Like they can't get over this. They, you, so if a player is at best an 85 overall, I can't keep going until I get to a 99, right? Like I, So I can't manufacture a farce if you really think about it, right? I can only develop the talent that I have in the room to being the best that they can be. I can't make them something that they are not from an athleticism perspective. So Notre Dame, to be a talent, to, to be a, national title contender against the Alabamas, the Georges, they need talent in the room because at some point you're going to get capped. You can't Mm -hmm. be capped here when a national title is up here. 
And that's what I think is the biggest thing is that Notre Dame does not lack the talent. I, I So the thing I'm hearing from you is your game is not as good as the old NCA game where you could just kind of go in and create players no, and move them all up to 99. It's not. Okay. It's, well, well, okay. I mean, that was fun and all, but it was also very unrealistic. Like, I love the NCAA games, but, like, you know, not every recruit's going to be a 99 overall at the end of their career. Right. You know right. what I mean? <laughs> right. Exactly. Still didn't – it made it fun. Sure did. So, end of the day, Ryan, there are strengths to build around this football team. There's talent at – Say at at safety. I'm writing an, an article about Ben Minich as we're doing this, trying to multitask. There's talent at quarterback. There's talent at receiver. There's talent at running back. There's talent in the offensive line, tight end. We we know there's a start at tight end. We're we we are comfortable projecting the offensive line and running backs to play together. And at the end of the day, I think if if we're right on that, I think that's really the key. Because if if the running backs in the O line are what we hope they are and think they can be and Michael Mayer can be what we think he can be, it takes a lot of the pressure off some of those other question marks that we'll discuss more tomorrow, quarterback, receiver, all those types, depth. And, and so I think those things are all important. And, and if they're not if – if we're not right and those areas are not strengths, it's going to make it harder for this football team to achieve its full potential on offense this year. And now you're going to be back to where you've been in other years, which is relying on the defense – to go out there and win you games. And that can only take you so far. As we've said time and time again, in today's college football, defense will get you to the show. It's done it for Notre Dame three times, 12, 18, and 20. But it doesn't win you championships because to win championships against those teams, you got to be able to score. And that's what's been missing in Notre Dame in the last, I don't know, when did uh, – when did Brady Quinn stop playing? Was it 05? Even, I'm not even 06. It's 05, yeah. 05, but yeah. even the 06 team wasn't great on offense. They they weren't as good as they were the year before. They weren't. Yeah, right. but the 05 team was the last time they could go out there and just, out, just score with people. But even then, why did that team lose to Michigan State? Why did that team lose to Ohio State? Why did that team lose to USC? Because they could make stops, especially mm-hmm. when, it, when it mattered. And that's ultimately the key, is you got to be able to make stops. You've got to be able to make plays in those games, even if you can score. You got to do both, and the problem is Notre Dame has not has has been able to make stops and play well on defense, but they haven't had the offense to balance it, and that's the big key for this football team. Hundred percent. So Ryan, we're going to do a mailbag next, but before we do, I do ask that you all hit that like button, hit that subscribe button, hit the notification bell, share this podcast, sign up for the message boards at boards.irishbreakdown.com. We will have two shows, uh, three shows coming up this week. Um, we're certain of two of them now. We will have. Uh, obviously, tomorrow, tomorrow and Friday, we'll have our normal shows. Friday, Thursday, we will be at one o'clock our normal our normal time, and then on Friday, keep an eye. This way, I hit the notification. But I'm not quite sure what our start time is going to be. Um, Sean and Sean Styers and Vince will be at practice on Friday. I will not be at Notre Dame's practice on Friday. Uh, wish I could be there. It's not my decision uh, in regard to the policies that they make, and we won't discuss that there. But I won't be there. So I've got to coordinate with them on what time we'll start on Friday. So what we'll do on Friday is we'll have uh, Vince and Sean will will kind of give us their practice recap and we'll talk about practice and then we'll dive into our mailbag. So we will have our mailbag on Friday. It'll just come after the practice recap. And then, of course, Friday, Thursday night at 730 Eastern, we will go live to cover the Jaden Osbury decision. He will announce between Notre Dame, uh, Auburn, Texas A&M, Michigan, Alabama and others Friday night. Uh, we obviously, as we just reported, uh, we will be discussing uh, Ben Minich's decision. He is going to make his decision at six o'clock. 
As we said, it'll be between Notre Dame, Oklahoma, Stanford, Kentucky, and Cincinnati. We don't know what time right now Dylan Edwards is going to be making his decision on Saturday, but whenever that is, we will go live for that to decide between what he is going to do, and he has not announced a list of final schools. I know Oregon has gotten involved earlier. He took official visits to Oklahoma and Nebraska during the June period, and obviously was recently committed to Kansas State. So we'll find out if uh, those three guys are going to pick Notre Dame or not. We like where Notre Dame stands going in, but we will find out if they can close the deal. So that's what we got planned for the rest of this week. The rest of today, Ryan, we're going to dive into the mailbag. Yes, sir. 